Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on and Mercedes had another trouble-free run to a 1-2 in the British Grand Prix. Well, it did, until things started to go wrong in the final three laps, when first Valtteri Bottas and then Lewis Hamilton suffered punctures. It was a dramatic end to a race that was otherwise pretty straightforward at the front, but gives us plenty to talk about. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me as always are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Now Mark, a rare occurrence this year because we're actually in the same place for this podcast, uh, for once having retreated to a nearby hotel, so we can, we can have some proper arguing. Yeah, well, I, I can argue remotely or, or in person. So I'm, I'm, I'm easy. Go for a bit of fisticuffs, maybe? <laughs> well, I'd have the advantage of being able to run away, but um, yeah, if you like. Well, we've set the, uh, we've set the agenda for some, uh, for some violence, but normally we don't disagree too violently. Uh, Scott Mitchell, of course, you are once again in your Stockholm front room, dialing in, ensuring every driver in Formula One is very, very familiar with the wall and what, what you've got in the background. So you, you're pretty comfortable being on the screen there. Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, I'm used to it. I, I now have uh, I now have quite regular comments. Actually, people have started to pay attention. The, the drivers haven't started to survey what's on my bookcase and stuff like that. But I have had some tweets and messages and emails from people spotting some stuff. Uh, eagle-eyed viewers uh, or uh, drivers and team bosses this week would have noticed that my um, my sim racing setup was removed from the background. Uh, I got told I got told off. Uh, by I got told off by my girlfriend. Well, I should say told off by my fiance now uh, for leaving it out when I promised that I wouldn't. But my telescope, which is often propped up in the background, I'm going to show you this because obviously visual prompts work really well on podcast. Look, it's actually it has actually made its way off of out from out of the corner in the other side of the room, and is now actually surveying the night sky. Is that telescope powerful enough so you can actually watch what's going on at Silverstone from that range? Well, I thought it w- would be, um, but when I tried to do that earlier, people had, I'd been misinformed, so nobody had told me that telescopes don't work very well during the day, and also apparently Silverstone's not up from Stockholm. Can I take issue with that? Telescopes work just as well during the day as they do during the night. You just see less. No, you see more during the day. Well... He's, he's looking at the telescope puzzledly. What? Are you talking about the night sky you see less of? Yes, obviously, because that's what telescopes are for. <laughs> they're making faraway objects look like they're closer. That's what they're for. Whether they're stars or whether they're They're not binoculars, circuits. Ed. <laughs> they're definitely not binoculars. Definitely, that's uh, very true. Maybe if you've got two telescopes, you could uh, simulate that. Anyway, we've digressed. Uh, let's get on with the matter at hand. Now, Mark, we're going to go straight to the business end of the race. Lap 50 of 52. Lewis Hamilton leads from Valtteri Bottas and Max Verstappen. All very easy. Then Bottas' front left goes. Yeah, and he said there was no warning. I mean, he said he, he had vibration. We heard him over the radio saying, I've got a vibration here. It's not too bad. 
Um, but he, in no way was he, he... He backed off to save it once he started getting the vibration. He stopped putting the pressure on Lewis. Um, and everything was going quite routine. And then on the way down to Village, turn three, uh, it just went. Um, he, he wasn't expecting that. Um, no one was. And then, of course, uh, we saw two more, and there was the possibility of a fourth at Red Bull because Max was feeling there was something very wrong with his. So, yeah, it was um, it was very unexpected, and um, there's uh, lots of um, investigation going on, as you can imagine, at Pirelli at the moment, trying to find out the exact cause. And we've got we've got a few clues, and um, we've got a we've got a sort of work in theses, which. Um, I've just been writing about which for the report, which will be up online, um, you know, in the early hours. So, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's a very, very uh, demanding circuit on tyres, especially on the left front. It's the high-speed corners. Um, it takes more energy out of the tyres than any other track on the calendar. Um, that's one thing. Um, so, but that really, all that does is, um, sh- all that should do, all it was expected to do was um, impose quite a, high wear rate on the on the tires it, it still wasn't expected that they uh you wouldn't be able to do i don't think they would end up doing 40 laps after kvyat um triggered the safety car and everybody came in um they were expected to be able to do a lot more than that all the teams had been advised they would be able to do run into the mid to high 40s if need be or even if necessary if you were going to manage it they they could done pretty much the whole race distance so yeah it was um they didn't realize they were running on the edge but they were and of course the key question is we had the drama of lewis hamilton on the last lap limping towards the line i think he made it with something of 5.8 5.9 seconds to spare ahead of verstappen but verstappen of course had come in for a pit stop now okay this was that there was talk about red bull being cautious etc concern about cuts but fundamentally it was for a fastest lap run, wasn't it? So yeah. they'll they'll potentially be rowing that. The idea was already there that they were going for the fastest lap, and the Bottas um, blowout mm, didn't didn't make them change their mind because they still had that second. They now had a second place, a safe second place. It was going to be a safe third place, and they were still going to go for the the point for the extra lap. Um, as Max said afterwards. Mm, yeah, maybe maybe my tire might have gone on the last lap, and then I wouldn't have had anything. And it, it, as it is, I got a second place when I thought I was going to get a third. So you could look at it that way. It's it's easy to do in hindsight to sort of look and say, "Oh, if only it stayed out, and it probably wouldn't have blown." But who's to say? What do you think, Scott? Do you think that it's a case a question of uh, they should have kept him out just on the off chance, especially once they saw Bottas go? Uh, no, no, because you um, then you get into the realms of uh, of second guessing or trying to predict what's going to happen. And good Grand Prix teams, the best Grand Prix teams, as Mercedes have shown countless times, you play what's in front of you, and there was no guarantee whatsoever uh, that they were going to uh, benefit from Hamilton having exactly the same problem. Uh, Hamilton hadn't been running in dirty air for most of the for, well for the entire Grand Prix. Um, so you could easily have just chalked Bottas's down to misfortune or one-off, whatever, down to circumstance. Um, and the the other aspect as well is you, you've got to look at it as a second place gained rather than a win lost because he was in third place. So I I, I think I, I think they I think they've still had a net gain from it because um, they've they, you know it's, it's an extra four points, isn't it? compared to what he would have had um, in a normal situation. I just feel like it's one of those scenarios where you can't get too greedy. They've, they've turned a third place and points lost to Mercedes, points lost to both Mercedes drivers in the Drivers' Championship into uh, a second place, nearly one, and Max has uh, earned a bucket load of points versus Bottas in the fight for second. Not sure I entirely agree with that. If I look at Red Bull's situation, I criticised the fastest lap point before, often on the fact it's quite a cheap point, but also because I do believe that it's a good idea to keep yourself within trouble range of a car ahead. Cars do hit trouble on the last lap of Grand Prix. It does happen. Most of the time, it doesn't. But if you always kind of keep your car there, particularly when you're not massively chasing the champion, is Max Verstappen going to be a championship contender this year? Is that one point? really going to make a difference? What is it? It would have been a 14-point swing had he managed to get past Hamilton. So 
I, I don't think this is this race specific, but in general terms, I tend to go with the principle of, you know, put yourself in a position to pick up the piece if something does go wrong, especially when the other car has hit trouble, unless they had a specific, explicit concern about the tyre. And I think everything they've said indicated it was just a general concern. Oh, well, we had a vibra- lots of people had vibrations, etc. Uh, if it was that clear, I think they could have come in. But we can argue the toss on that uh, all day. But I think Red Bull are in the business of just trying to get wins at this this stage, realistically. So I, I, I in general, agree with the principle of... You keep you keep yourself you keep yourself out there. You put the maximum pressure on, just on the off chance. You do that fifty times, you might win once. You never know. A few fastest laps don't really counterbalance that. I don't think. No, but I think if you were if the, if they'd stayed out and Max had uh, Max's front left had gone, there's every chance we'd be sat here thinking, well, why did they stay out? They could see that other teams had problems. Maybe they'd have just been better off banking uh, banking the result. Uh, I think it's always easy to to look in hindsight at things they could have done differently or should have done differently but i think norm, normally i would normally i would feel like that 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 it was a missed opportunity i i, I think but i just the, the the bizarre circumstances of the race the fact that they still gained a position um i'm, I'm struggling to I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, basically, that um, they can look at it like glass half full rather than half empty. I think I'll try to do that, but they'll probably be uh, frustrated by by that. I think it depends on your situation. A bit like Raikkonen had the failure on the last lap at the Nürburgring in McLaren many years ago. On the last, it was the the first corner on the last lap. They were right to gamble for that. There was no point in them pitting him because of the championship situation. I think the same applies to Verstappen. But anyway. Uh, let's move on to uh, the Mercedes situation, Scott. We knew they were going to be dominant. But the margin of the advantage was was enormous, wasn't it? Qualifying Max Verstappen was 1.033 off pole. In the race, the Mercedes drivers did have plenty of pace in hand. It was uh, it was effortless until uh, the tyre trouble hit. So what do you make of that? Are you surprised? Um, I am surprised, but I will flip your question slightly because I'm not necessarily surprised at the size of the Mercedes advantage, it's more the disadvantage that the others, the deficit that they've got. Because I do think that as much as Mercedes is doing a mega job and they've clearly moved the power unit to a new level, which is fantastic, and they just do this amazing job year in, year out of maximising everything. They've done some cool stuff with the rear suspension this year. They've done an excellent job. But in their own words, they don't feel like that they don't feel like they've made like a particularly like an extra special step in performance this year. And if you look at the year on year performance of Ferrari, um, which obviously over the course of the season has gone backwards in quite a dramatic way, Red Bull I don't think had made a step year on year for Silverstone qualifying. So I I'm not trying to take anything away from Mercedes because I think they're doing a brilliant job. And I think even if Ferrari and Red Bull had done a good job, I think Mercedes would still be the the, the team to beat. But I think the size of the gap is as much because Red Bull and Ferrari are dropping the ball as it is Mercedes are doing an excellent job. I'm still surprised, absolutely. It's an enormous margin. They looked absolutely brilliant, peerless this weekend. Lewis Hamilton can literally win a race with three wheels on his wagon. So uh, they're doing a phenomenal job. I just, I'm now at that point where I feel like my frustration at Red Bull and Ferrari is now getting to the point where it might be exceeding my admiration and respect for Mercedes. Yeah, I... I, I largely agree with that it's uh, red bull and ferrari have dropped out of the the gap the the um that used to be there and just left a, a great big gaping hole um where the merck's competition used to be and their gap over the i hate to use the term but the class b the the midfield merck's advantage over that is about the same as what it was last year so they've made normal year-on-year gains um but it yeah ferrari and Red Bull have, have, have dropped back. Um, there were three different ways Merck could have won this race. There were the way they did it with the uh, three wheels on the last lap, or they could have done it with a, a pit stop with one lap to go after Bottas's tyre had gone, or they could have done it um, by pulling out a pit stop worth of margin after the safety car, after the Kvyat-triggered safety car. Um they easily had the pace to pull out the 18, 19 seconds you need for a pit stop here and to have just done a two-stop. So the, that, that's the size of their advantage. They've got very different ways to victories. You know, when you look back at it, there's lots of different ways they could have won it. Um, so, yeah, they, they, it's, um, I, I, don't, I don't see 
anything really standing in their in their way other than ill ill luck. It's it's this season. There's very very difficult to see anything beyond a a Mercedes victory and any of the remaining. Well, we don't know how many there are remaining. Maybe eleven, maybe twelve races. Um, it's quite feasible they're going to clean sweep them all. Well, as you say, that sort of speed gives you many different ways to win races because that, that just allows you to uh, to control things. But you could say, in terms of this question of can they win every race, we talked previously about the fact, well, something always goes wrong. I think they've dodged a bullet today. Mm-hmm. This was one they could easily have not won. They have won it. You know, if you're crossing the line with, with three wheels on your wagon, as Scott put it, then by definition, it's it's a close run thing. So this might actually be the, the sort of Monza 88 moment where, I don't know, Senna the right rear wheel just hangs together and he limps to the line and somehow holds off the Ferrari after after the collision. It might just be the sliding doors moment that uh, that changes things. Well, Martin Brundle didn't have a clashing sports car race and he was driving at Williams rather than Schlesser and, and didn't get in the way. Yeah, exactly. Then again, Senna colliding with Brundle. That did happen at Monza as well in 93, didn't it? But that was Senna's fault. Yeah, it happened, it happened at Alton Park and Snedderton and most of the <laughs> F3 tracks in 1983 as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let's have a look at one of the Mercedes drivers in particular. You know, Lewis Hamilton's performance speaks for itself. He's brilliant, isn't he? You know, he's an all-time great. What number win was that? 87, 80? It doesn't matter what specific number it is. It is ridiculous. Um, just a Just a crazy, crazy high number. Yeah, but we're not going to talk too much about Lewis Hamilton on this one, despite another British Grand Prix victory. But Valtteri Bottas, Mark, I mean, it's kind of Groundhog Day for him, isn't it? He looked like he was on top until Q3, then Lewis Hamilton nailed it. And then on the second run, Bottas dug deep, matched Hamilton's first run time, only to discover Hamilton has just disappeared another three tenths up the road, as it were. Then he has the puncher, and that's it, 30 points down. I mean, has that torpedoed his title hopes? And more importantly, just how hard is it to be Valtteri Bottas when it's just like... You dig deep and you think, oh, I've pulled something out of the bag there, only to discover that the guy on the other side of the garage has got a bigger bag that's that's just got more in it. Yeah, yeah. I recall Eddie Irvin saying after you know, a few years of Michael Schumacher's, being Michael Schumacher's teammate, it was, you can put up with it for a while, you know, like getting hit over the head with a cricket bat every two weeks, but eventually it wears you down. Um, to his credit, Valtteri's... Not showing any signs of being worn down, he still comes back two weeks later or a week later and up for the battle again and takes it to him. But yeah, Lewis just always has a bit more in him, doesn't he? It's just it, more and more as he's as he's gotten more experienced and is not losing his way so much like he usually occasionally used to do. On on setup, he's he's more attuned to to. Um, to, to, to a direction to follow and then just pulls it all together and, and seems to know, seems to just know that he can, that it, it, it doesn't matter. Even he, he did that spin in, in, on, in Q3, in, was it Q2 or through Q2. Q2? You just know, you just know that it, that doesn't really matter. He, he's going to put it all together and he's going to put it, all the bits together when it matters at the, the final run of Q3. And he just, he just does. And it's, it's like he's building up to that crescendo moment from the moment, um, the wheels are turning on, on Friday morning. And he just, he just has the game sus. I feel like it almost hasn't made that much difference to Bottas's title hopes perversely. Yeah. It's 25 points gained uh, Hamilton on him but he's just got to keep doing the same thing hasn't he because it doesn't change the equation for Bottas he's got to do the most he can possibly do and a bit like Rosberg in 16 hope that Hamilton has a bit more bad luck than him and uh, and that gets him over the line but it's uh, yeah it's, it's tough being up against uh, an, an all-time great driver like uh, like Hamilton and you know we all know that Bottas is a very 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 good Grand Prix driver but you're up against an all-time great and and we often see people struggling. I think he's doing pretty well, but we did see the key differences. Didn't quite have the the same tyre management, so we're starting just to drop away a little bit. And then in qualifying, obviously, the real key to Hamilton's pole, that was the fact that he just kept the tyres absolutely perfect in that first sector through the twiddly bits, um, leading on to the National Straight, as it used to be called the Wellington Straight. It is now kept the car in line, didn't lock up, didn't slide, and that just meant he had the grip for the rest of the lap. So when it matters, Hamilton's just inch perfect. Yeah, he just has a lovely feel for the car. So um, he will typically just... The car won't slide quite as much in the slow-speed corners because he's ahead of it. Just, you know, we're talking tiny, tiny fractions of a second. Um 
and that means that the tires, the rear tires, usually are um, not not too hot, so that by the time you get to the long duration fast corners and your maggots and your coppets and your cops and your maggots and beggets, the the car's just got more grip just because you've handled it better earlier in the lap, and it's just those little things. They're not. They're not. Um, a demonstration of him driving faster, although he's capable of doing that as well. They're just a demonstration of a just a superior feel, an edge that he has over just about everyone. Um, it just it plays out like that in this formula, but it doesn't really matter what the demands were or would be, he would find the way, and that's just what all the greats do. I was disappointed by what Bottas did at the start, though. Um, you know, Lewis didn't get a great getaway, um, and then, but Bottas just seemed to—I don't know—I I don't know whether he thought Max was going to hit his left rear quarter. I don't know if he thought that he was going to drift into Lewis or Lewis would drift into him. But he just—he just seemed to give up halfway through the, the the sweeps of turns one and two, and then all of a sudden, Lewis was clear. Yeah, Verstappen. It was such a big check up from Bottas that Verstappen had to get out of it and then try and fend off Charles Leclerc for third. I, I I don't get it. Like that's you've been bested in qualifying, which is a straight fight, and and Hamilton's done it. You know that this is a circuit that because you're flat out so much of the time through loads of high speed turns, you're not really going to get close to him during a stint. So surely the most sensitive and opportune moment to to beat him is going to be off the line or on the opening lap and we saw last year at the British Grand Prix that Bottas can go wheel to wheel with Hamilton in 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 the right context and he just didn't I don't I don't know why I don't know if I'm judging it harshly but it just felt like he just he just didn't want to go wheel to wheel with him yeah it did look that that first few seconds of the race you thought oh Bottas will be in the lead here but you know it didn't it didn't quite come off but it's just the usual thing, isn't it? It just comes up that tiny little bit uh, bit short. Uh, Scott, let's have a look at the man in third place, Charles Leclerc. He was uh, he qualified strongly, fourth place, third place in a trimmed-out Ferrari at a track that does play to the car's weaknesses, but they decided they'd, they'd try and compensate for the, uh, the power disadvantage on Saturday by leaning it out a bit. So people will want to declare this a turnaround, won't they? But it's, it's premature to say that. But it was a very, very good performance from... Leclerc in a Ferrari team that had worked out the best way to to mitigate its weakness. Yeah, I think it was his best Grand Prix weekend performance probably since Monza last year. It was it was really really good qualifying, absolutely brilliant. You could see that the car was uh, not inspiring a lot of confidence because the 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 low drag version that they'd worked on the low downforce aero package for here um, it it was causing Vettel all sorts of problems in in the limited amount of practice time that he had, but then mainly through qualifying the the difference in assertiveness that Leclerc had behind the wheel was fantastic. And then in the race, just I was waiting and waiting for the moment where it just, it, it turned for him where, you know, he gave himself every chance by qualifying in Q2 on the mediums and not having to run the softs, which are terrible for Ferrari on Friday, but he's still waiting for like, right. Okay. When's it going to go? When's it going to go? it's not going and it was only when Ricardo got past the two McLarens right at the very end of the race that Leclerc suddenly came under any kind of threat because Ricardo just had brilliant pace at the end of the Grand Prix and the gap I think got trimmed for like a second and a half or something um, but that was the only moment where Leclerc looked any kind of vulnerable in terms of pace it was just brilliantly executed and it sounds crazy doesn't it to imagine if we'd said at the end of last year or even in pre-season that a Ferrari driver would be doing an absolutely sterling job to qualify fourth and hold off a Renault for a podium. But I feel, I think, I think Leclerc was absolutely majestic this weekend. I really think he was brilliant. Yeah, I think he's probably my driver of the, the weekend. I'll go over a bit more data before deciding finally, but really, really uh, outstanding. And obviously the thing that gives us that reference point is Sebastian Vettelmark. Now he really struggled with the car leaned out. He finished 10th, and bear in mind, in an, in a normal race where no one else hits trouble, Leclerc would have been fourth anyway, probably. And you had Vettel would have been sort of 12th, 13th, you know. That, that's a huge difference. 
He had a horrible weekend, really. Silverstone, he's never, he's never really liked. It's full, it's sort of fast sweeping corners that made. it's not his forte. It's, it's the, the slow, quick direction change stuff that so he's always excelled at. Um, he used to struggle here against um, Kimi Raikkonen, even in, in, in the Ferrari. Um, so it's not his favorite place. But on top of that, you had a, a Ferrari which was uh, very, very low on downforce, deliberate choice that they've made because of their power situation. So that just made the, the bits that Seb's uncomfortable with even even worse. And on top of that, he has um, a horrible reliability um, on uh, on the fri- on the Friday and got virtually no running in at all on the, on the Friday. So yeah, pull all those things together, and um, he wasn't very happy. And he was saying after the race that his confidence in the car was very very low. Um, he didn't feel that he could get in tune with it at all. Um, he's just he's he's not in a good place uh, this weekend at all. Um, but you know we we'll it'll turn around when we go to other circuits that have got different characteristics like um, shorter um, slower corners um, I'm sure we'll see them right back relative to Leclerc not relative to the rest of the field but um, yeah and I think Ferrari did a good job with what they had this weekend generally Um, that very very low downforce thing that they had the trim that they had um, purely because of how little horsepower they've got um, but it maybe helped them in the end with the the loads on the tires too. They they were just you know they're not putting the same loads on that left front as the the fast cars, so uh, the, the the high downforce cars. So they were probably further away from the tire problems than anyone else as well. Yeah, and I think it's it, it obviously it looks very bad for Vettel. It was a very poor weekend for him, but it shows just how condensed that that whole pack was at one stage. Pretty much everyone was in a big DRS train, weren't they? So kind of. Third place to Claire, back down to kind of Vettel in the end. I suppose Russell was the next one and on merit who was just kind of off off the back of, of that group. So really small differences add up to a hell of a lot there. And it, I think it speaks very well for how good Leclerc was to qualify fourth and finish third in a car that was very tricky. I mean, I asked him after the race how concerned he was about the tyres in the race. And he said, yeah, they were, they were worried that the tyres would go away. It wasn't too bad. He had a few situational advantages. Grosjean was a bit of a blockade for him. Gave him a little bit of time early on, kind of paying back the favour. Leclerc did Haas and Magnussen uh, last time out, actually. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, Leclerc has had a really strong season this year and actually Vettel's been largely good. He wasn't good here, but, you know, Leclerc continuing to enhance his reputation apart from the, uh, the mishap in the Styrian uh, Grand Prix. Now, Mark, Racing Point was extremely conspicuous from this battle for the last podium place. Uh, it should have been in there. We expect it to be. So where did this pace go to? We can talk about the other driver shortly, but obviously Lance Stroll, really disappointing run. He ended up in ninth place, didn't really go anywhere in the race. Yeah, I've not really drilled down in exact circumstances of his race, but he, he faded, didn't he? And he was he was in among the McLarens and, um, well, ahead of the Renaults for a while, um, and then just faded and got passed not just by both Renaults but also the um, Pierre Gasly and the recovering Alex Albon. So yeah, I mean it, it, it um, coming to a circuit that the car should have excelled at. Um, it, we we lost the reference point as well of um, Nico Hulkenberg because because he, he didn't even start the race. So. It, it, just the time when everything was on Lance's shoulders and he's sort of got a nice sort of momentum going coming up to this race where you thought well this this could really be um you know a career defining moment for you you're in a a car which should be absolutely super around here you everybody's relying on you you're the only car you know out there and and it just didn't it didn't happen and i don't know as i say i haven't yet drilled down specifically into his race he may have had some specific problems that uh, i haven't had a chance to look at yet but um yeah it didn't look great from the outside he was certainly complaining over the radio about the engine not pulling when he wanted to, although he was getting comments about the battery and that uh, state of charge and everything. So, uh, Scott, you uh, you heard from Otmar Safnauer after the race, didn't you? Yeah, it was, it was a bit of... Uh, Otmar was fairly on, honest. There was a little bit of making excuses, but generally owning up to the fact that they were they were off, off the pace. They just didn't have the pace they thought they'd have on the long runs. Um, a couple of the mitigating circumstances that Otmar was looking for, one was obviously... Um, 
they qualified. They got through Q2 on the medium with, with Stroll and the idea was then um, you'd run long in the first stint. So they're blaming being on the mediums instead of the softs for Stroll giving up some track position um, at the start. He dropped, I think he dropped from 6th to 8th on the opening lap. Um, he got passed by, who would have been Sainz and Ricardo. Um, and then the safety car obviously nullified any potential advantage for, for the strategy because everyone came in and switched to the hards. So he lost track position early on and any chance he'd have had of his probably superior strategy in a normal Grand Prix uh, paying dividends later on didn't pan out. So then obviously got got going again in a bit of a, in that DRS train uh, and just didn't have the, the pace or the performance. And I think... The car was obviously more difficult than they than they thought it was going to be, but I I might be being cynical and unfair, but I also just think that Stroll gets into these ruts in races where it starts to go away from him, and I feel like he just checks out. To be honest, you know, he was complaining at one point. Was like, I think he felt like his engineer snapped at him because he was like, "I don't have anything else," and he's got well, you've got energy, so use it. And it was almost like a come on, like actually pay attention to what you've what you've got at your disposal and. We saw it in Hungary, didn't we? When he got frustrated, he was, he was stuck behind a, behind a Haas and he was getting frustrated saying he just couldn't get past him. It was, it was a Haas. There's no excuse for not getting past it quicker. Just just feel like if it had been Perez or even Hulkenberg in that situation, I've had a little bit more confidence at them maybe forcing the issue a bit more. Yeah, I think unless there's a specific problem that subsequently comes to light you can say that's been a fairly disappointing performance overall from Stroll in a car that is good we've seen that that car does have race pace look at the Styrian Grand Prix but of course the car that had the race pace and the incisiveness there was Perez wasn't it and Stroll does have this habit of getting stuck I think when he needs to he can he can attack well on the first lap but not always the uh, the best overtaker shall we say so Big asterisk against Racing Point generally for me in terms of execution, everything this season. They've got a really quick car, did a great job, but four races in, they're just not getting the results. And okay, we've got to talk about the other side of the garage. They had some misfortune there. Now, Scott, uh, you spent all the practice and then the first two parts of qualifying riding with comeback kid Nico Hulkenberg. Uh, that was effectively it for his weekend, given an engine problem prevented him from starting the race. And obviously he didn't make uh, Q3. He filled in, of course, for Sergio Perez. So what, what did you make of his weekend, or should we say his 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 day and a half? Yeah, I basically wasted my Friday and Saturday, didn't I? Considering he didn't even take part in the Grand Prix. Um, he was, I was really impressed with him, especially on Friday. Um, he jumped in and I think like literally his first timed lap, I was watching it and I just, I was smiling while watching it because I was just like, he's just, he's pretty much cracking on. This is incredible. Um, You could tell that he was, uh, you could tell that he was keen to to, to get on with it. He did a really good job. Um, I, there was an amazing bit uh, about, I think about three quarters of an hour into FP1 where I was fortunate enough to listen to probably three minutes, maybe four minutes of basically a mini debrief with his engineer while he was in the car. Um, and just of, he just Hulk just started talking. He was asked about something else, and then he went, "Yeah, okay, so now onto the car," and just reeled off this amazing list of things that he was happy with from the first runs. Things that he w- were different to last year. Things that he needed to get more comfortable with. They had a thirty-second conversation about the the steering responsiveness and the and the geometry they talked about um power assisted steering settings uh maybe that could change after fp1 and i was like this is this is amazing like for like 40 minutes 45 minutes maybe 50 minutes in and he's already trying to dial into areas of big performance gains and he took that into fp2 his race pace in his long runs in FP2 were really encouraging. And then on Saturday, he made a really good step on his one lap pace. So the low fuel running was really good. Q1, he was mega. And then Q2, I just felt like he got disrupted by trying to do what Stroll did and qualify, get through on the mediums. And he didn't, he, he, he was going to, he, he wasn't going to make it. So they then had to switch to the softs anyway. And he didn't have the lap time in him. It was a bit of a scruffy lap. So I almost felt like he'd have been better off having that, first lap on softs just to keep building the momentum because that ultimate performance is where he's going to be lacking but in the end whether he'd qualified eighth on and had to start on softs or 
13th as he did and have free choice didn't matter anyway because uh, they think that a bolt um, they think that a bolt somewhere in I think it was the suggestion was the gearbox but Otmar wasn't entirely convinced basically a bolt somewhere sheared and got stuck in a position that basically caused the the engine to seize it wouldn't turn over so they couldn't even fire the engine up so yeah his race was uh, he didn't even make it out for a, a reconnaissance lap just stuck in the garage there's a certain irony there because we're all discussing could he end this record of 177 races without a podium that's more than anyone else without a podium but he neither ended that record nor did he add to his starts which was actually probably the least likely uh, outcome of, of yeah, all. Yeah, didn't think of that one. Did yeah, you? exactly. Yeah, we should we should have put some money on the uh, on the outsider one but um Mark, how about Sergio Perez? He failed the covid session though. We've both been Tested for COVID-19 regularly. We've passed with flying colours, uh, thankfully. Um, only There have only been three negative tests out of almost 20,000. It might even be past 20,000 now, which is hugely impressive. But Perez failed a test. It, initially, it was inconclusive. They did a retest. He was out. Uh, obviously, there's been some criticism of him among people. What, what do you make of it? Do you think it was just bad luck? Was it misadventure? You can run to meet your bad luck, can't you? And um, going to a, a COVID hotspot, Whilst um, having sympathy for the reason why he went out there, his mum had had an accident, he wanted to go and see her, and, and she was in hospital, and he wanted to go and see her as she was coming out. We've all got sympathy for that, but you shouldn't be surprised if you come back with with the, the virus, if you go to a virus hotspot. Um, it shows, so we were talking about this morning, weren't we? it shows that the system that F1's got in place has worked, um, in that you come here and you have to be tested to get back in to, to you know to the to the bubble to the F1 bubble, and um, he didn't. So he was free to do as he pleased between the races, and he did. And then you have to get tested to see if you can get back in, and he couldn't. So really, I'm no one to blame. Um, it's just one of those things. Yeah, exactly. I think people misunderstand a little bit what the the protocols and the code of conduct are there to do. It's to cover the the, the safety of the events. Everyone in Formula One can't be controlled for six months solid, outside and between and everything. So it's it's once you're into the event is is where it's covered. Your behaviour is limited. Between in between, you can do what you want. It's interesting actually. John Sott did say uh, this morning. Uh, I was part of an audience of about half a dozen of us uh, journalists had a little audience with uh, the FIA president, and he said um, that that he thought probably what happened to Perez would be a little bit of a a warning, not in terms of doing anything wrong because he says well you know anything you if you do something there's a risk attached you take the risk thing but he he suspected that that might just remove any suspicion among the drivers that they're impregnable because obviously Perez said well I took a private plane well that doesn't protect you does it just because you're not flying commercial so it just shows that this virus is out there we can all you know any of us who are here we take precautions but you know there's not zero risk every time we we do anything there's there's a risk uh, attached to it of course and um you know just a private plane is is yeah okay it, it cuts out one of the the places where you might get it but if you land your private plane in the middle of a a, a covid hotspot you, you might get you might get covid yeah I, th- I think i think todd's right actually that it will lead people just to be that little bit more careful because it's not it's a it's a question of your career, isn't it? You know, Perez is trying to just remind everyone that if they do get Vettel, that he's very good. He hasn't had the he hasn't had a brilliant start to the season. It's been a bit up and down. So the last thing he needs to do is miss races. He's missed this one. He's probably going to miss the second Silverstone. It's very it's possible he could miss Spain because hopefully he'll clear up soon. But we we don't know. Well, all I'd add to that is that this weekend has or Sunday's race has actually been a good advertisement of. Uh, of why Racing Point need need Perez because, as you point out, not Perez did not take part in the Grand Prix. He contracted COVID nineteen. Nico Hulkenberg didn't even make the start, and Lance Stroll still only scored two more points than the pair of them in a car that probably should have been fighting for a podium. So this wasn't really a good advert for Stroll's uh, credentials as, as a team leader. Yeah, especially seeing as Stroll picks up two places to Sainz and Bottas' problems as well. So he could easily have been 11th uh, in that race. So, yeah, I mean, uh, get well soon, Sergio Perez. He's he's said he's asymptomatic, etc. So hopefully he'll have no lasting effects. Hopefully he'll test positive fairly soon and we'll see him yeah, back. 
Negative. It says negative, sorry. <laughs> it is confusing, I, I, isn't it? I wish, I've, missed him some, I've missed him some tremendous ill will there. I was testing positive bad. Oh, I might have to go and speak yeah. to someone about no, no, my results have been there. So, you're, well, you're, so you, you, want, you want Checo to keep having coronavirus, Ed? Apparently so. I was, I was being a spokesman for Nico Hulkenberg there. Probably not. I'm sure Nico <laughs> wouldn't uh, wish that. But yes, best wishes, uh, Checo Perez. I'm sure you're listening. He's, he's always listening to what we have to say. Um, then again, he hasn't got too much to do at the moment while he's isolating. So, uh, but yeah, hopefully we'll see him back in the car, fit and healthy, uh, very, very soon. Mark, let's have a look at McLaren and Renault. Now, McLaren was strong all weekend, spent the vast majority of the race ahead of the Renaults, looked like they get a hat full of points. Come the end of the race, we had Ricardo fourth, Ocon six, Norris between them. Science obviously dropped down to thirteenth. Uh, McLaren ended up sort of with a a small hatful of points rather than a, a half a hatful. Um, so, what what do you make of of that performance? Obviously, a lot of it was situational, mm-hmm. but Ricardo was quick at the end. He yep. was disappointed he didn't catch Leclerc. Yeah, um, the McLaren's got more downforce than the Renault, and so. It, you can see that in the corners that it's quicker than and also how it tends to be a little bit slower down the straights. So it found the tyre problem earlier and you heard it. There was one stage in the race where you heard um, Lando's engineer say, can you ease up, can you get a bit closer to Carlos in front of you just because we want to fend off Ricciardo when he gets past the, the house. And he said, not really, I'm, I'm, I'm looking after my left front. He said, you need to get Carlos to, to move, get a move on so we can both move up together. Because Lando clearly felt if he got in the dirty air, he was, he was going to trash his tyre. And this was still, this is only mid-30s laps, so there's still a long way from the end. So he's already aware of the problem. So they asked Carlos, to, could he, you know, hurry? And he said, no, I've got, I've got a vibration on my left front. I don't, I don't want to push it anymore. So I think it's significant that the cars with the high downforce were finding the tyre problem. The Renault... Well, the Renault has less downforce, so a bit like the Ferrari probably wasn't finding, you know, finding that problem on the tyre um, quite so early. But also, Ricciardo, again, did a fantastic race. And it's very easy to, for him to fall under the radar in a, the car in that part of the grid. I think he's had a really good season. He's had a fantastic season. Um, and I think um, there are three outstanding drivers this weekend. Lewis Hamilton... Uh, was one of them. Um, Charles Leclerc was the other one, and I think Daniel Ricciardo was the third. He did just his pace. He did. He does that thing where he he, he maintains position without taking a lot from the tires, and then he just turns it on at, at, at the end. He, he do, he's done it so many times; it's not coincidence. And he just has this fantastic pace at the end because he's just not taking the life out of the tires, and everybody else around him has. But he's kept his position in the field ready to unleash it at the end. He did it again, and um, his pass didn't show it on TV, but his pass on the um, last lap of Lando in um, in the Stowe sounds like it was a good one. Yeah, uh, you you saw that, didn't you, Scott? Well, I think both myself and Mark have heard Daniel talk about it, but you've actually watched that. Yeah, it was really good. I actually think um, I think Ricardo's undersold it, which is uh, not like him because he's normally quite the advocate of his daring overtakes. Um, I think he's 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 taken a bit of credit away from himself because it looks like Lando's McLaren's clipping when just as they get to the end of the hangar straight, he catches him quite late. Um, obviously in the toe DRS, maybe Lando having a little bit of, uh, of an issue, um, j- just right at the end of the straight, but it's a, it's a proper like old school dart out at the end of, uh, into Stowe under brakes. And I think we saw quite a lot through the weekend in the support categories of people doing the opposite and overtaking around the outside because Stowe's now so, obviously it's always been high speed on entry, but you can carry so much speed through it now that it is actually perfectly feasible to go around, just drive around the outside of someone there. It's not really like the, it's not a big stop, is it? Even though you have monstrously high speeds down that straight. Um, so for Ricardo to just properly send it down the inside was, uh, was, was really, really good. Although as I was telling you, Ed, um, a little bit before we recorded the podcast, I did get quite amusingly furious when I was trying to find that overtake to the point where I thought Ricardo had made it up <laughs> because I was de- I was desperately trying to find I was trying to find it on the on F1 TV on the onboards and I got on board with Ricardo two laps to go um they go they the he's tucked right up underneath the or fairly close to a McLaren coming out of cops and then they go through Maggots Beckett's and the McLaren exits stage left 
uh, Ricardo carries on through Beckett's, the re- McLaren rejoins, then they go down the hangar straight, um, and it looks like because the McLaren's come really slow off a of chapel, Ricardo pulls alongside and gets past him. So I'm watching this, and then I look back at the quotes, and I'm thinking, well, this is just nonsense. Is Ricardo is Ricardo having us on here? Because he said, didn't he, um, that he'd asked his trainer if it got shown on the broadcast. The trainer said no. The question was, oh, we didn't see it because it wasn't on TV. And I thought, oh, Daniel's, Daniel's sort of spotted an opportunity here to properly talk something up when it's actually nothing. And then after about 10 minutes of interrogation, I realised I was watching his overtake on science. <laughs> it's the wrong McLaren. That's the quality of analysis we expect uh, from you. I, I would like just to throw in a, a positive for Ocon. He was the lesser Renault driver this weekend. He was two tenths slower in, in qualifying. But he did have a pretty good race. He was a bit unfortunate. I don't know entirely why, but he lost a place to Vettel under the, those, in that round of safety car pit stops. They all had, I presume, he had to hold because there was traffic. And then he had to kind of come back through, uh, through Vettel. So uh, a good solid performance from Ocon. Not at Ricardo's level, but as we said, Ricardo, he, he has been. He was one of the stars of the weekend. He's been one of the strongest drivers uh, this season, certainly. Uh, now, Scott. Let's move on to some Red Bull stablemates in 7th and 8th. They were the wrong way round, of course, with Pierre Gasly 7th and Alex Albon 8th. But before we get into Albon, it's going very well for Gasly this year, isn't it? He's just bossing Kvyat in qualifying and by and large, he, he has a decent fist of, of getting points if the car holds together. Yeah, I would, um, I would have guessed before the start of the season that there was nothing that Gasly could really do to make himself seem like a viable option to Red Bull again. I kind of felt like he's been put back in the junior team because there's nowhere else really to put him, but there's nowhere on, no one to replace him. Um, he'd need a really exceptional season to get properly back on the senior team's radar. Well, actually, I think Gasly's probably doing about everything that's realistic to do exactly that. As you say, he's, he's smashed Kvyat so far. He's doing a great job in qualifying. He's racing really well. Um, he did a brilliant job today. I really liked his move on on Vettel, and he, he basically made pretty no fuss of the of the Ferrari. So, yeah, another excellent race for Pierre Gasly. So, when it comes to Albon, Mark, uh, Albon had the crash in FP two. Fell in Q2 again. Uh, obviously, lots of people talking about the pressure on him. And obviously, Gasly finishing head will lead to more saying that. And then he had the uh, the clash in the race. But before we get on to the clash itself, how do you see Albon's overall performance? I think maybe this weekend wasn't quite as uh, as bad as some were, were making out. Before his crash, um, he was um, going very quickly. Um, and although Max didn't get a, a clear run... Uh, in, in in the equivalent session, because he'd been held up by Grosjean, um, it did look as though they were very, very close on raw pace. Um, but you probably Alex was a little bit on the edge, probably, and a little gust of wind as he turned into Stowe was all it took in a car that's notoriously edgy and tricky and takes just the slightest little uh, inconsistency of, of, you know, how you move the steering or how the wind happens to catch it, and uh, it's gone. And we've seen this so many times this year, and uh, it happened at, well, it happened not the worst possible moment, but a bad moment. It it sort of interrupted the momentum of his weekend quite badly, and they had to rebuild the car, and then there were electrical problems with the rebuilt car, and he didn't get much running. Um, And then, of course, he didn't make... Q3, which looks bad when you know when you when you're in a Red Bull, but actually he was only a couple of tenths off Max. It's probably the closest he's been this year to him in, in, in that. And I think probably with the lack of running that he had, trying to go through on the medium was probably a little bit ambitious. And if they just done what Renault McLaren had done and just said, let's get the maximum out of the softs, we can get two runs in Q2 and just make three. He would have got through comfortably. Um, but it was an ambitious choice, I think. Um, Hulkenberg made the same choice at uh, Racing Point and fell in the same way. So, yeah, I think probably not that, not as bad as it looks. And then, of course, he has the, uh, the first lap accident, um, which I don't really think was his fault. I think it was a legitimate gap to go for. I think Kevin hadn't, hadn't realized he was going to be there. Um, Kevin caused the... You know the, the the gap to be there. He clipped the curb a bit awkwardly and lost a bit of momentum, and that that presented Alex with a 
a gap. And, you know, when you're starting that far back in a, in a Red Bull, you, you're not going to be waiting for, you know, big invite opportunities. You, you're just going to be taking them as any any half chance you can find. You've got to, you've got to get on with it. You've got to start making progress. And just yeah, those two things came together. So he's gone through a bad run. But I think... Um, he may actually have turned a corner this weekend because I think when you look a little bit deeper below the surface, I think his raw pace and the little flashes that we saw of it, we didn't get that much of a chance to see them, but the little flashes that we did suggest that actually he's um, he's making good progress. And we should be able to find out a little bit about that in the appallingly named 70th anniversary Grand Prix weekend that we've got coming up, the repeat race at at Silverstone. Uh, now, Scott, what did you make of that? Now, Alban was a little bit frustrated because I think he felt his tyres weren't really up to temperature for the for the start, so he was trying to sort of make some progress at the end of the first lap. Magnussen had made a, a, a very fine start and got up to, to 12th place. I think you're going to agree with Mark on this one because you were quite annoyed about that penalty, weren't you? Well, yeah, because it was stupid. <laughs> um, it was a racing incident. Uh, it was in, in exactly the same way as I felt the Hamilton Albon incident in Austria was a racing incident. You've got, uh, th- I don't understand how the stewards can say they took into account the fact that Magnussen was slow off the previous corner and they've still determined that Al- Albon's predominantly to blame because they they basically say well we understand why this is was a completely legitimate move and the door was closed on him but he's still the person at fault which i just think is stupid because we're going to we're into this position now and i've been saying this for a few weeks where it feels like the stewards now they see contact they decide that there has to be a penalty and therefore that they will find a way to a, a portion a predominant amount of blame instead of just saying that sometimes it's unfortunate and one party will come off a lot worse in what is fundamentally a racing incident. So yeah, I thought it was silly. Um, I actually didn't think Alban did anything wrong. I wasn't that impressed by what he did afterwards. I Christian Horner was saying that he thought Alban drove brilliantly today and did a really good job in his recovery. I kind of felt like Alban sort of did his usual thing of being really, really quick at times, especially once he was in clear air. But I didn't feel like it was his... I feel like he's driven better in traffic. You know, like, it felt a bit similar to Spa, his Rebel debut last year, where he was a bit stuck in the DRS train initially. Maybe he was nursing a bit of um, damage on the the front left. Um, But then he sort of impressed a bit more in the second stint once he had a little bit more rhythm. Yeah, eighth place in the end for for Alban. Uh, I'm, I, I think that uh, that whole thing about Holdy predominantly to blame. I think it was a classic racing incident because you can ex- you could see why that you wouldn't normally make a move there, but the move happened because, as you said, Mark, he absolutely thumped the curve and, and kicks him kicks his car uh, wide. So yeah, I thought that was a slightly uh, slightly strange one, but yeah, I think underlying. Some gains from Albon with his new, his new race engineer, Simon Rennie. So we'll, we'll see that uh, this weekend. Now, while we're talking about Haas and Stewart's decisions, Mark, Roman Grosjean, uh, he spent the first stint of the race, well, the, the second half of his first stint, towards the sharp end, thanks to being the only driver not to stop. So he ran long on the mediums to gain some trap position in the hope of just doing something strategically. Didn't pay off result-wise, but he got a warning for his behaviour and the way he defended against Sainz moving uh, across on him into Stowe and Ricardo doing the same thing on the run to Brooklands. Do you think the GPDA chairman went too far? Yes, I do. And when um, he was informed of the penalty, he said, well, I left him half the track. Well, that's true, he did, but that wasn't really the point. It was the fact that he, he shimmied very suddenly across that makes the following driver, in this case, Sainz, not know whether that's that he's going to continue going that way. So you can't commit into that space because it looks like the guy's going to be there when you, by the time you get there. So you can't use the, the latent threat of violence to, you know, to, to dissuade a, a legitimate move. It, you, 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 is Sainz supposed to think, yeah, well, he's just bluffing there. He's moving violently, but he's going to leave me half the track. You, you can't assume that, especially at these speeds. So, no, I, I don't think his etiquette was uh, quite right there. Um, and, uh, yeah, similar similar comments on his Ricardo move. I don't think that was quite as outrageous, but it still wasn't very nice. So, yeah, I think Grosjean's probably getting a little bit, 
frustrated, uh, a little bit bitter. Um, you know, it's it's not really happened for him, um, and it, yeah, it it doesn't reflect well for, as you say, someone who's in a leading position of the GPDA. Yeah, well, he's he's asked for clarification on this because he he basically said, well, I don't really like it, but I thought Max Verstappen got away with it a few years ago, and we didn't put an explicit rule in the place, so I did it. I mean, the thing I don't like about it is if it's misjudged you can end up with a bit of a plane crash, can't you? Because you can end up getting a wheel-to-wheel uh, launch. We have seen that in some other cat- categories uh, in particular in the past, and it can be really, really uh, serious. So, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised he got a warning and uh, for, for that uh, for that thing, and they're going to talk about it in the driver's, uh, in the driver's briefing. So, uh, yeah, so I hope he doesn't uh, doesn't do that again, because I just don't think it's it's really very uh, very safe. We want hard racing, but that's not hard racing. It, seem, it seems odd to me that dan- outright dangerous, violent, threats of violence, as you put it, are fine, or you get away without a penalty, whereas that, that Albon one, you don't, but... There we go. That that that's the the rules. Uh, in terms of the rest of the the field, Daniel Kvyat had a bit of an eventful one. He he ended up going off the the, the rear snapped on him, uh, going into uh, in the, sort of the first part of Maggots, the the left hander. Um, he initially took responsibility, but then he said it wasn't. He just done a switch change, but also uh, Franz Toss, the team principal, suggested that maybe there was a puncher as well. So this there, it did look like something had gone wrong because it just went so quickly. Yeah, the the, the work in theory that. This the switch changes what distracted him and led him to clip the curb, and it's clipping the curb that may have punctured the, the tire, which then you know the accident unfolded as it did. I, I, you know, some combination, some unfortunate combination, um, but he's not having a great time of it. It's um, it's it's really not. So season sort of um, collapsing under the under the pressure of uh, Gasly's performances in the other car. So yeah, he needs to turn that around pretty sharpish. Really, he's. he's we talk about Albon being under pressure. I think actually Kvyat's under more pressure. Yeah, he needs a season to turn around as quickly as the car turned around when it's uh, when it went uh, on him. Uh, now, in terms of the the other finishers, obviously outside the top ten, bottom down in eleventh. George Russell in twelfth place. A good run for Russell. He was delighted to actually be able to overtake a non-Williams on merit in normal circumstances. He was saying he thinks that's the, the first time he's really done that in a normal racing situation, not on the first lap or not passing a, a hobbled car. Williams have done some work to try and get the car quicker on race pace because it's been it's been a comfortable <laughs> an uncomfortable really you would say when you're slowest tenth uh, fastest of the ten cars in the previous races but it was it was actually going racing this time and they held on to their Q two pace but of course he had the five place grid penalty for not respecting the yellow flag but twelfth place for Russell is a good a good result he picked up a place from Science who was thirteenth. Not much to say about the Alfa Romeos, Giovinazzi in 14th, Raikkonen classified 17th. And I think he, was he running at the end after he had that? I think he was still there somewhere. Uh, but obviously we didn't pay too much attention to him after he'd had that, uh, that problem with a bit of front wing breaking. And then, yeah, in between those two, there's Latifi 15th and Grosjean down in, in 16th. And of course we had a few, uh, a few non-finishers. But, uh, yeah, I guess the place we should, we should finish is we are going to do all this again in a few days. Mm-hmm. Should we expect anything particularly different? The way I look at it is we're not going to see a, a dramatically different shape, but I quite like that midfield, that that group from sort of third down to 11th in the final finishes of that race. You can sort of pick them all up, shape them all, and have a completely different order. Yeah, a bit kaleidoscope with some pink, some orange, and some yellow in there, and occasionally a bit of white. And uh, yeah, I, will it be different? Yeah, I think it probably will. Um, the The... The competitive order at the at the front's pretty much set, but yeah, in that midfield definitely. And I think the way the race will play out will be different because we've got the softer compound, so it's probably going to be a two-stop. It's going to be hotter weather, so again, pushing it all towards two-stop. So it's going to probably going to be a more varied race than this one was because up until the time of the, the tyres started going pop, this was looking a very uneventful race, Kvyat's accident aside. Um, I don't think next week's will be i think there'll be a lot of jostling and a lot of uh, strategic variation yeah of course the tires are going to be one step softer uh, which actually shouldn't be such a big problem because we probably won't see these marathon stints on uh, on, the, on the tires so uh, hopefully pirelli will get on top of it i suspect they'll probably as you suggested come back with uh, the explanation that it was uh, that it was debris uh, are you are you waiting to make a final declaration scott well, I was just going to say this, that that's all true. And I agree as long as the solution isn't for them to say, actually, 
in light of the problems that we've had this weekend, we're going to go back to the same compounds or we're going to raise the tire pressures to a point where it's actually relatively the same. Because as you say, this the, the race was dull until the last two and a half laps, in the last like four minutes and 42 seconds. It was a pretty boring race. So as long as the solution, as, as long as it's basically, yep, this is fine to crack on because we know what the problem is. What I'd hate is in like 24 or 48 hours time, we're told we're not entirely sure. And in the interest of safety, we're going to use these compounds or we're going to uh, mandate a higher tire pressure. And then the teams will realize they can actually just basically do what they normally do and one stop it. Well, at some point, we do expect Pirelli to give us their, their definitive verdict on what, what caused the problem. Obviously, they're going through all the, all the tyres now. So Monday or at the latest Tuesday, I expect we'll have some news on that on the race website. So head there, therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen. There'll be Mark Hughes' in-depth race analysis, my driver rating. As usual, Scott Mitchell will have been writing about something or other. I never quite know at this stage what it's uh, what it's going to be. You never know what you're going to get with, uh, with Scott Mitchell. There's some Gary Anderson on there. And of course, our YouTube channel will be doing videos and all sorts on there. Plus our other podcast, the Gary Anderson F1 show, where Gary Anderson will tell you what he thinks is wrong uh, this week. And do subscribe to this podcast as well if you haven't already done so. Thanks for listening. And we're going to do it all again in a few days' time. <laughs>